This is a Media Lab podcast. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for fixing the ship. No, he, they they can't hear you on these microphones. It's you're you're too far away, and mostly also because we can't afford to pay another voice actor. But I'm sure you you'd be great. You'd be great on the show. We just we just don't need a guest this week. Thank th- thank you. Oh boy, what a rigmarole that was, Dave. Just wouldn't shut up. No, that that thing. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of race of alien that was. And it's no, also no. amazing that we're just really not even flustered by that, even though we've no. only been in space for a few months. It was very sticky. A lot of mucus yeah. trails going on here. Well, uh, Dave, would you stock Clint Eastwood, do you think? Uh, sorry, did you ask me if I have been? No, would you? No, would you I, ha- I haven't. Wait, is this on record? This is on record, yeah. No. Standing outside of his like Carmel by the Sea home, peering in, looking at the paintings he's made of you, maybe. The thing is, I left a very large knife at home. Mm. If I had it with me, though, I might go find him. All right. Oh, sorry. I just uh, received a text here. Oh, it's from the mechanic. Can I play Muskrat Love? Ew. I think it's time to get out of here, Dave. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. Apparently, my name is Muskrat Lovewell. No, it's Dave. And I'm the machine. Your new code name is Muskrat Love. My new, my new Twitter handle. Nom de plume. Uh, this is a podcast Ooh. where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. So somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be talking about Play Misty for Me. For Clint Eastwood, an invitation to terror. You ever find yourself being completely smothered by somebody? There's no escape in passion. escape in speed there's no escape from terror you will change the locks huh? nobody asked you to wait for it you're not jumping me buster blue eyes get off my back evelyn of course a big thank you to our patrons green girl yyc and it's a conspiracy podcast Woo-hoo. i think just from what we talked about last week dave what history do you have with this film Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm shocked. Not that there's a movies I've never heard of, but this is a Clint movie yeah. with some, you know, apparently very successful and I've got nothing. And we'll see. Can we talk about it? That there's the film debut of somebody who I think is hilarious and I had no idea she'd even made a movie oh, in her youth. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you know, we can tell like, it's not like any big secret or anything out there. This is the film debut of Jessica Water. Walter? So, uh, Walter. Walter. Sorry, God. Jessica Walter, yeah, Walter. Mother of the mother Lucille in Arrested Development, who tragically just passed away actually this year. I blame COVID. If I had watched this movie, I would have noticed it right away when she walked on screen. Um, but uh, I'm excited to see what her film debut feels like. I wasn't even humble. Yeah. That was just a brag. <laughs> if, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what she is like in this movie. I, I'm kind of there with you in that. I have not heard about this movie before. And it's interesting because even though there's other film directors that I have not seen, like their first movies, like Steven Spielberg, I've never seen the movie Duel, even though I know that that's his first movie. Um, I've never seen THX 1138, even though I know Hmm. that that's George Lucas's first movie. Uh, It'd be really neat if we could watch both those films. This year and compare what first films are like from all those massive directors. That'd be a wild thing to do. 
So yeah, too bad. Too, too bad. bad. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting. That I haven't heard about this movie before. To be fair, Clint Eastwood has also made forty films. So some there's got to be something to get lost in the shuffle. Films. Yeah, that's true. It's no space cowboys, that's for sure. Also, it's his first, so yeah. you'd expect it to be terrible. Well, that's not true. Not, there's not every first person's film is bad. We actually reviewed one last year in 1999, which was um, Being John Malkovich. That's Spike Jones's first oh, movie. Oh, right, Spike Jones. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, though, he had directed tons of music videos and other things. Yeah. This is literally the first time Clint Eastwood is directing anything. I mean, other than his life and his bravado. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Lead with the crotch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, literally. Uh, how jazz? What do you? What are your thoughts on jazz? I love jazz. I've been listening to. Well, I I shouldn't say that as though I'm currently listening to, but I had a big jazz uh, period in my life. It is how I got into what was once known as trip hop or electric oh. jazz or all that kind of stuff, electronic jazz, just because it's a good, a uh, connecting leeway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't. Study all of the nuances musically. I just loved the idea of a couple of people sitting in a disgusting, smoke filled room inventing rhythms and doing things that weren't supposed to work. And somehow, you know, abstractly, they're just the most incredible sounds. And then, of course, the standards and all the great uh, vocalist crooners. I remember I bought a four disc. Remember when you had like multi disc boxes? It was cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had one that the, I don't want to say the women of jazz or whatever, but it was like Dinah Washington, yeah. Ella, Billy, a whole bunch of folks, Nina. And um, yeah, so I like that stuff, but that's a bygone era. Now I, I don't know what, I just Spotify, Spotify changed everything. You and Spotify, oh my gosh. You, it's you, great. You, you criticize I me for being like super techie and like you're the one who's so like, I, I've given up my life to the algorithm of Spotify. <laughs> But that's why it's not techie, because I don't even I don't even have control over it. I just I worship it. Just take me, take me. <laughs> I'm, I'm floating on the take me into your ones waves. and zeros. <laughs> it's not necessarily jazz, although I do like a good jazz artist. Uh, but what it reminds me of is this one time I was in San Francisco, and this is the setup to this story is going to make me sound <laughs> way cooler than I actually was at this time. But I was there with a bunch of French Canadians. And so we were walking around late at night. And off in the distance, we hear basically like a saxophone of some kind, just like bleeding through the night. And so just by ears, we kind of tried to, we tracked it down. We walked through the streets, had to go back and forth and like finally located this really like hole in the wall bar that could maybe fit 20 people standing inside of it at one time um and it was packed it was just packed full of people we of course been walking up and down steep uh, san francisco streets so we're like sweating already and we like with our glistening arms like wedge ourselves into this small little bar and it's like this ancient man like just like full white beard like down to his chest probably drinks like a whole bottle of whiskey every single day and a carton of cigarettes he smokes and he gets up there and like they're jamming out behind him and he's like like he just like goes into like his like jazzy like bluesy voice and i was like transfixed for the next 20 minutes no idea who that was (laughs) did not actually find that out that information but it's like this magical moment i find that music can transport you these other places and i just wanted to point out not once did i want then to stalk that gentleman and perhaps kill him well you hadn't just you just hadn't stayed long enough that's right in his five more minutes and it would have crossed your mind also if you had been huffing lead (laughs) uh you know you might have bridged bridged the gap i did uh, inhale a a cigarette and be like hey play muskrat love for me and i like threw the cigarette (laughs) at him so uh, all right, let's do this then. Let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about Play Misty for me. What song would you request if you could request a song right now, Dave? Uh, what genre? Uh, let's do light jazz. Mm. I think I would uh, do something like Kenny G. Is that light jazz? Kenny G, yeah. <laughs> just rocking out with the clarinet or whatever. Uh, it's, it's not a <laughs> saxophone. Is it a tenor sax? I Maybe mean, it's a saxophone. Mm. Love the hair, though. Beautiful locks. Still got them. Just 
run your fingers <laughs> to that glorious, glorious hair. You know what would be amazing is if it if you if you could do it, I would imagine not getting tangled. That's how you know that your locks are doing okay. I'm thinking of this movie now, and instead of Clint Eastwood, it being Kenny G, and that is incredibly funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> not that we've seen it. Not that we've seen no, it. No, not that we've seen it. Uh, anyways, Kyle Davis the Machine is, of course, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Uh, this week, we are brought to you by ATB. And specifically, I want to talk to you about the future of podcasts, another podcast that you can put into your feed. It's hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist. The future of podcasts has launched its second season by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you. The future of podcasts promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found, and connect with us at atb.com slash the future of. What's the future of our podcast look like, Dave? I don't know, but if I catch you looking that way, I'm going to have to get that kitchen knife. No, that's, we haven't whoa, seen the movie whoa. yet. We haven't seen the movie yet. I'm going to kick you down at the cliff. <laughs> punch, punch me off. Let me tell you, Kyle, about yep. Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has a low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no-obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing, and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right. Well, Dave, I'm, I am excited to know what you thought. I, once again, I'm pretty confident that this is going to be Yet again, another movie that you disliked in the year 1971. So lay it on me. What were your immediate thoughts on Play Misty for me? Well, I, I'll say this. I really enjoyed that I knew nothing about mm. this walking into it. And it reaffirmed something that I say a lot, but I don't do enough, which is that movies are better experienced as a surprise. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And this is a movie that needs to be experienced as a surprise. So, since nobody probably has ever heard of this, this is a huge spoiler a spoiler alert. This movie has nothing to do with music. It's a slasher flick. <laughs> uh, I I don't know about sl it, it definitely gets into that mode a little bit, yes. I, I, I wouldn't say it's completely a slasher That's flick true. in the traditional sense of that term. You know, it's a, it, I uh, I feel like, and this is this is uh, fairly obvious in reflection, but seventy one is setting up a lot of tropes yes. that are going to become their own genre, so, isn't it? Well, that's actually just to like jump right off of there. The one movie that this actually sort of reminds me of, not necessarily in tone, but like a bit about how it's structured, is the movie Halloween. Uh, which is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. I love the movie Halloween, which was seventy eight, maybe seventy nine, comes out somewhere around there. Of course, like the the serial killer Michael Myers is going around knifing people, but it kind of starts super slow. Like it's just you're following these kids around. They're going to school. They're coming back home. They're taking their babysitters' jobs. And it, it ramps up and ramps up and ramps up until like those final 25 minutes. You're like, holy shit. Like, oh, my God. And so it does this really great job of ramping that up. And I think that this film tries to do that. And in my personal opinion, gets a little bit bogged down in the middle. But it definitely sets that up and then uh, has this, I think, really great last 20 minutes or at least last 15 minutes. Yes. And I think maybe I'll surprise you. I actually uh, kind of like this movie. Mm. Though the caveats are that A, it's clear that this is a director's first time making a movie because there are at least four different tones and sections that are, it, it kind of jars you. So I don't mind uh, the slow dramatic setup. So can we learn how autobiographical this character is to Clint because uh, he cannot keep it in his pants. <laughs> Yeah. One of my fondest memories is a summer I spent with Clint in his second home. We hardly ever left the bed. Yeah, you just it's hard until the middle to understand what the point is. And then once it's set up, just Jessica Walters as 
a nutter. You know, you're expecting it to sp- yeah. spin up, spiral and spiral. And then I don't know. We had, then we got a concert. Here's the a thing: concert. Uh, yeah, they go to the Monterey Jazz <laughs> Festival, which, I, to be honest with you, I actually kind of liked. I just liked being the final. Like, oh, this is cool. They literally went to the yeah, Monterey like Jazz Festival. Film. Yeah. I, I agree. After doing the research, I found out that actually that whole section with the other girlfriend was added in. Like that was not in the be. original script at all. It yeah. really was a very like condensed. Jessica Walter is stalking him, coming into his life and, and forcing herself into it. That's what kind of the original concept was. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess just to keep beating the same bush here, like the beginning, like the end, middle gets really bogged down. This is a Kyle thing. I talked about this last year with um, the Cider House rules. Don't have sex out in the in the forest right it's so gross you get ants and dirt all oh. over you it's an awful time just don't when do you're it on a blanket you know it's like they're literally lying down on undergrowth it's gross and then it's just like scene after scene of them like walking and looking at each other and like sitting down and it's like okay like i get it they're in love we can we can move this on I just got this flashback of, is it Mad TV? Lowered expectations. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. It's just like, oh my gosh, just keep moving. Uh, there's also, this, it's interesting. We were texting each other and we were sitting right beside each other and we both had the exact same first impressions. Like, who chose that font for this movie? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird. It looks like a, a 60s, like, sitcom, a sitcom like text yeah, game show or, or something yeah game yeah. show it's like why would they pick that for this movie anyways it's it's very bizarre the font choice for the opening titles i can't remember if this is clint eastwood's production company's also their first film it's not it's uh, their fourth or fifth okay because yeah it does it has some problems i had this thought by the end um as as you brought up that last sort of jolting horror movie conclusion that as it was leading up to it i was like you know without all the bullshit in the middle this is a 60 maybe 45 minute teleplay right this is a made for tv movie and it would have been really good uh but they clearly did a lot of filler because nothing in the middle is necessary at all other than maybe being apologetic about clint and trying to make him into a better person than he is the the other analogy i'm going to throw or the other example i'm going to use because of another podcast I listened to, I've been watching a ton of 1950s horror films recently. And boy, does this have a lot to do with that, where it's just like, oh, we have a great setup and kind of a cool payoff, but we really have to stretch this to 65 minutes. So we're going to have a lot of bullshit in the middle where they're just walking around, going here, going there. And it's just like, oh, God, like just do something so that anything can happen in this movie. That's really what it felt like to me. It's like this feels like a 50s horror film where it's like there's the director behind the cameras going like stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. Because it's like we don't we have to get feature length here so we can release this into theaters. Actors like shrugging at the camera <laughs> like I got nothing left. I got nothing left. Like, just I, keep going. Yeah, let's go, go, go. Um, OK, I, I actually want to have a conversation about horror and thriller here. but. Before we do, let's go into some of this backstory so that we can uh, understand how this movie kind of was made and put together. Play Misty for Me opened October 1st, 1971. It's rated 7.0 on IMDb. It has a 78 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 84% from 37 critics. And it has a 72% from 10,000 plus users of that service. Uh, it is available on DVD and on Blu-ray. Uh, you can buy or rent it on iTunes, and there's no other way to stream it, at least here in Canada. This was a financial success. Its budget was $950,000, so under a million. And its total box office was $10.6 million, or $69 million with inflation. Wanky, wanky. The plot description, of course, is... Shaking my head. <laughs> the plot description from IMDb is, The Life of a Disc Jockey is turned upside down after a romantic encounter with an obsessed fan. It stars Clint Eastwood as Dave, Jessica Walter as Evelyn, and Donna Mills as Toby. Was there anything that you wanted to call out about these actors? We talked a lot about Clint Eastwood last week, but anything else we want to talk about? No, I mean, um, Jessica Walter, she's great. I didn't know that she was the voice of Fran in Dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, I guess I'm, I didn't know that either. I should. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. That's kind of neat. And uh, apparently, uh, I mean, Arrested Development is 
one of the best shows ever made, I think. But apparently Jeffrey Tambor is a huge asshole. Oh, huge asshole. So yeah. like, yeah, I read up the story on her and basically my opinion of some of the other cast members of Arrested Development get really uh, pushed down because she called him out really early on and nobody stuck by her. Like not a single person. So, you know, if you look at the roles he chooses and how he appears on screen, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, I haven't done much else. I just, I was thinking about that woman that was the girlfriend and it turns out she's a big soap opera star yeah. and uh, she looks like it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Judge everybody by their looks. What are you in BTS, yeah. Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, could be. I could be. I need skinnier jeans. And be 20 years younger, yeah. but sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't think there's much else. Apparently, I'm just taking a peek here that uh, this movie was in Dirty Harry. Yeah, I was going to mention that. There is a very, very quick scene where it's on the theater marquee in the background. We'll have to watch Dirty Harry Which is again. interesting to think about. Because I, I, I don't know how that would have happened. Because if this came out, I guess, this would have probably been filming earlier. Dirty Harry came out in December. So maybe there was a bit of a crossover with filming and, and that sort of thing. Plus, there's always that weird thing that us plebs don't know. Like the actual production and shooting schedules of these things. So. Yeah. Maybe this was filmed before he started Dirty Harry. Yeah. And this era, unlike now, movies were churning. You do, you could do three movies a year. Two or three, um, yeah, easily, yeah. Whereas I, if you're not in the MCU, it's very difficult to get that kind of action anymore. Well, so. you, it's even hard just to get that funding anymore. So like, yeah. that's, that's also part of it. There is actually a lot of Dirty Harry crossover into this movie. So let's talk about that. This was written... By Joe Himes and Dean Reisner. Story by Joe Himes, directed by Clint Eastwood. I think where we need to start off, Dave, is talking about the Malpaso Company. I love their tacos. This is Clint Eastwood's production company that has helped to finance, I'm pretty sure, every single film he's directed. Plus, occasionally, other filmmakers as well. Uh, Malpaso is derived from Spanish, meaning bad step or misstep. And just a little fun fact here, too uh, Eastwood also used to own land surrounding Malpaso Creek, south of the town, Carmel-by-the-Sea, in which he was also the mayor of for one term. There's a lot of nepotism, <laughs> nepotism in this. <laughs> uh, so that's all to say that Malpaso, the company, was originally formed by Eastwood and his financial advisor, Irving Leonard, a man who Eastwood has described as a second father. He advised him from the mid-50s, like when he broke into acting, all the way up to the development of this movie. And not just with money, but with roles and with what he should purchase. It was a, a very intrinsic relationship that they had. What happened was after the Dollars trilogy, so Good, Bad, and the Ugly, A Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, Leonard takes a portion of those paychecks to then help build this company up. And the first film to be released with the El Paso banner was this movie called Hang 'em High, which had come out like three years, I think, before this movie came out. This is another Western that started Clint Eastwood and was successful enough to help them build the company even bigger and then start Clint's very long Hollywood career. But Eastwood was also really itching to start directing. His exact quote is this. After 17 years of bouncing my head against the wall, hanging around sets, maybe influencing certain camera setups with my own opinions, watching actors go through all kinds of hell without any help and working with both good directors and bad ones, I'm at the point where I'm ready to make my own pictures. I stored away all the mistakes I made and saved up all the good things I learned. And now I know enough to control my own projects and get what I want out of actors. From the advice of Leonard, Play Misty for me would be his directorial debut. However, before any other advice could be given, Irving Leonard actually died around Christmas of 1969. So he would not live to see him actually release this first movie. Uh, and he was very, pretty young. He was only 54 when he passed away, too. So Yikes. it wasn't like uh, an, an old, old man. We talked a lot about Clint Eastwood last week, Dave. Uh, being a big star at this time, Dirty Harry would be released a couple of months later and cement his reputation. But 1971 was a pretty big year for him. He started in one of the highest grossing films of the year. That was Dirty Harry. He made his directorial debut with this film. And he also starred in The Beguiled, which was also directed by Don Siegel, who directed Dirty Harry. And while a lot of the stuff that Clint Eastwood was doing, both in front and behind the camera, was sort of being dismissed here in uh, the United States and Canada. 
by the critics. He was a big box office star, but critics weren't like the hugest uh, proponents of him. Uh, Clint Eastwood talks about this all the time about how France, out of all the places, loved his stuff. So, including this movie, The Beguile that he also made, like they were huge films for him over in France, and were also one of the big things that helped like build his career up in the early days. There's something, maybe it's the grit, maybe it's the anti-hero feeling. There's something about, particularly classic Hollywood, where everything's packaged in a neat thing that I think that Europeans will thumb their nose at, um, because it's quaint, and I, I think they can sense the propaganda. And there's something about how Clint Eastwood, starting from the spaghetti western films, developing an anti-hero kind of charisma. If you look at a film like this, it's pretty daring. Like, this is not a movie that a fledgling sort of star would direct and star himself in. Right, I mean, right. it's, it's taking a lot of chances and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty gutting. So, I can imagine sort of my stereotype of a European crowd going, oh, like that was actually quite surprising uh, for I me. I think it would be, uh-huh. I think that's oh. actually how <laughs> they would have said it over there. If we were Muppets, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I'm sure someone has called us Muppets before. <laughs> Um, um, please make yeah. a Muppet out of me. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, the, here's the thing. The story for Play Misty for me started with Joe Himes. Uh, Joe is actually short for Joyce. She started as a model and dancer, also took some jobs as a fashion illustrator, but moved to California in the early 60s to be a film writer, which, of course, that means when it was the late 50s, early 60s, uh, she was made into a secretary. So she was working at Universal Pictures as a secretary. When one day she runs into this up and coming actor, a real nobody called Clint Eastwood, um, and they become friends. And then a few years later, as his like stock is rising, friends. Uh, well, I don't know, but anyways, his stock is rising, and she approaches him with this story she's been working on called "Play Misty for Me." And at this time, it was just a, like this sixty-page rough draft outline of like the story beats of what would happen. Here's how much of a good friend Clint Eastwood is. So even though he put an option on it, which just means that no one else can make it until he says no and, or until the time elapses that are under the option. He's like, you know what? Let me release the option and you sell this to Universal because you'll make more money right now. His company had not yet been like built up enough, so he couldn't offer her enough. So she does. She gets like three times the amount of money that she would have been able to get from Clint Eastwood. They, though, shelve it. But then, craftily, Clint Eastwood signs a three-picture deal with Universal and says, I want to make this movie <laughs> that he had had her sell to Universal in the first place. So is he, <laughs> is he a nice friend or is he a puppet master? Well, maybe. I guess you could. You, you, there's arguments either way here, Dave. So he takes this script, gives it to Dean Reisner to polish up. Both him and Joe actually worked on the script to Dirty Harry as well. But as you might remember, there's like eight credited writers on that script. So it's hard to know exactly who made what. Um, decisions. The element that appears to be what Reisner added was the other girlfriend who didn't really appear in the other draft. So all that stuff was added in after the fact. That's not that surprising, is it? Yeah. That character is such a male-written character. Well, I was going to say, it's so underwritten, too, because he's just like, yeah. oh, she's there, and now she's well, not. That's, that's male writing, right? When you have a male writer, well, the women I, I don't know. have I'll no I'll push background. back and saying that males can write good female characters. It just often doesn't happen. <laughs> All right. But I don't well, like to go with the blank as like, no male can write a woman character. I'm trying to think of one. I don't know. I mean, but let's move who, on. Who wrote yeah. the alien movies, Dave? Yeah, but is the alien, the alien movies are not of this nature, are they? No. We're not no. really getting an idea of who Ripley is as a human being. We just know that there's a woman who's going to punch an alien in the face, I think. Yeah. She shoots him. How about the alien queen, though? She's the best female <laughs> representation. Um, it was also originally supposed to take place completely in Los Angeles, but at Clint Eastwood's urging, they filmed it all around Carmel-by-the-Sea, where he was living at the time. Don Siegel, the director of Dirty Harry and The Beguiled, both which came out in 1971, stood in in, in case Clint completely failed as a director. Apparently, he didn't need to step in all that often. Uh, fun little fact here again, Don Siegel plays the bartender in this movie. Oh, that's Don Siegel. So that's Don Siegel. His wingman. That's right. Who actually does a pretty decent job, I thought, as that yeah, bartender. He's, he's actually pretty decent. Uh, they also shot at the Monterey Jazz Festival, so they captured the real performances from the time. They needed to pay special royalties for certain songs to be featured, the biggest of which is the song Misty. Eastwood is this huge jazz fan in real life, so this is probably like a dream come true for him that he's got to go spend the day at the jazz festival. 
he looked pretty happy. Yeah. Right? And that's the scene where he's like, he has a genuine, that part where he sits down in the chair, he looks like a kid. He's like, this is great, man. <laughs> so, I, I mentioned how the budget was $950,000. It actually was a million dollars was what they originally gave to him. But in classic Eastwood style, he came in under time and under budget. So, he gave the $50,000 back, which is actually a recurring thing for Clint Eastwood. If you don't know anything about his directing style, um, there's been a bunch of like late night guest appearances you can go and hear these stories. He will rarely do a second take. He's very gentle in his acting, like literally because he doesn't like to yell, apparently. He doesn't like to like shout uh, unless he's like telling punk kids to get off his lawn. But uh, he doesn't even yell there. It's all through the teeth. But apparently it's like he'll, he'll sit down and it's like, when you're ready. And that's all he says is for, for when he talks to actors. So, uh, and he hates spending money in both his personal life and in his professional life. So he never likes to go over budget too. So I should tell you both with the recent props and sound effects we've been using. This podcast is dangerously close to going over budget. Dave, you called this a slasher flick and I can understand your impulse to call it that was that did that work for you ultimately or are you repulsed by that uh no i i think it works i think i when you push back a bit i realized i characterized that because that's the part of the movie i actually remember yeah and i no, think sure. that hearing that that is the core of it is the important part and if anybody watches this film or has watched it that's the only part you like you could if there are ways to block out <laughs> Some of the sequences, this movie is great without anything in the middle. As soon as Jessica Walters turns into like the first time she yells at the neighbor and yeah. you know it's on, you're like, all right, like this is going to be, this is going to ramp up. And it, and it kind of tries to. And when it does, I think it's great. I, I was making a lot of horrified looks at my television. Uh, I was getting a lot of tension, but unlike some of the other movies watched this year, I actually really enjoyed it. I don't know if it's because uh, Jessica Walters is just really good in this film because she plays both sides and in the middle, like the desperation yeah. is, she's incredible in this. Yeah. It's like, you are off your rocker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or if it's because Clint is, you know, I mean, he's Clint, he punches her in the face to win. Sure but... it does. <laughs> I have to say, like, that was the part that totally caught me by surprise. Like, I figured, like, he would do something, like, either shoot her or even, like, knife her back or something and kill her. But the fact that this ends literally with him, like, just cold cocking her right in the face, <laughs> smashes out of the window and falls to her death off of a mountain. I'm like, okay, that is not how I thought this was going to end. Incredible. I really enjoyed that. It was so dumb, but it was great. And you know what? I think I was really surprised and quite enjoyed that he got himself chopped up yeah. before he had the opportunity to punch her. And that's why I think the punch in that is actually a lot more gratifying than in Dirty Harry, for example, sure. where I couldn't, I, like, I know it sounds weird, but I could empathize more with Jessica Walter's crazy bipolar psychopath than this. I don't know, she just seemed more, maybe not human, but like not a monster the way well, that- Well, I think, I think what makes her scary and I think this is partly due to the way the character is written, but definitely how she performs it is that, yes, she's quote unquote crazy, but I've also met that kind of crazy, mm. right? It's not so over the top where like, okay, now you're just a, a cartoon character that's running around doing stuff. It's like, no, like you're like, I've been in these situations where it's like, you are taking a little bit too many liberties right now. You, you know what I think, like the way you describe that, and knowing that this was written uh, by another woman is Jessica is able to show that she's suffering while being crazy as well. Mm -hmm. Like she looks like she hates how, like she's very self-aware. Whereas when we watch Dirty Harry, the Zodiac, no, no, what was his name? Scorpio. Scorpio, yeah. Is, is a cartoon character. It's just like, there's no depth. He's literally a pantomime of psychopathy, psychopathy, yeah. sociopathy. And so it's difficult. It's difficult to watch over two and a half, however long that movie is, because it becomes a grind, you know? It, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not that appealing. This one, there's this sense where you're watching this woman degrade every minute, at least when she's on screen, which yeah. is why the middle part is just such a waste of time. Well, yeah, because especially because, like, again, there's certain scenes in the middle that definitely you should keep. And even at, like, a fairly lean, what is this, an hour and 45 minutes... It's like, you could have cut about 15 minutes out of this pretty easily. 30, yeah. 
<laughs> well, even so, like, I mean, like you can make this even leaner and, and be yeah. way more effective in what you're trying to do. I will say one of my favorite reveals is having her, the uh, Jessica Walter character, Evelyn, being the next roommate. And mm-hmm. it, I think that's up so well, where it's like this, her, this other girlfriend is constantly having these new roommates. And I didn't even see it coming. I was like, oh, oh, this this makes it even better <laughs> that, that this that she's constructed this huge ruse to be able to, like, draw him back to her. All And this is the thing that maybe will surprise you. I loved all of that. Mm-hmm. So the core of this film, the part that's written by Jill, I think is re- it's really well done. And those are the parts, unsurprisingly, that are shot the best. And I yeah. think that they work the best on film. And unsurprising, all the schlock. Like, you know what I hate? I hate the uh, running dialogue cutting to 17 different scenes, but they're still having the same conversation. Yeah, I, I, that stuff's the worst. I, in, in theory, I could see that maybe working if it wasn't like just one run-on dialogue that was happening, if we were cutting in between different sections. But that first cut that happens, like, what's like, whoa, that, that's such a like... <laughs> like walking through portals or something well yeah it's like what just happened there i thought that i like missed part of the movie or something like that it's like oh no no that's just a really weird cut to make on a city street on a beach on a cliff back on the beach in a forest and you're like what the fuck and they didn't even yeah they didn't even write the dialogue to have splits in the narrative it was just a like one run-on sentence what a boring conversation that must be (laughs) (laughs) um I, i will say too like i don't actually know how i feel about it it's like think it's homophobic but her gay friend that shows up for that one scene is like oh and he tells him to go like why don't you go hit on some sailors or something like that it's yeah. like this is weird why is this even in the movie this is by the way like we go going back to like sunday bloody sunday and even like uh death in venice and stuff like that which is like gay representation is maybe not at the not best there. uh representation here yet but it's like oh there's much more in like these quote unquote like mainstream films than I was giving them credit for. I feel like if you're going to try to write in a snippet of comedy, I guess is what they're yeah. going for. Like like a clown. I mean, whether or not, I mean, we could have a bigger argument of whether that clown should be, you know, into a trope of being homosexual or being a black in many movies or yeah. whatever, Asian breakfast at Tiffany's. At least write it well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. nothing lands. It's just a weird random... This man walks in, says a lot of very annoying things, and then they leave. You never see him again. Doesn't play a role in any other part of the fiction. That's what it's, I mean. It's like if he came back or there was something more that that character was doing, it's like it's still caricature. Yeah. Like if Evelyn kills him to get to her or something, you know, and, yeah. and then it becomes a horror movie. But then you can understand why he's in there. That was very weird. Yeah. I'd actually forgot he was in it until you brought it up. <laughs> well, I know. I was like, there's, oh, yeah. There's large parts of this movie that you you can just like forget i don't know if this is the best movie to have this conversation about but there's always this debate about like well what is a thriller versus what is a horror film and it's kind of one of those things that sometimes is hard to explain like you can be like really pedantic about it which is like well a thriller is meant to thrill you and a horror film is meant to horrify you like that is kind of what the difference is so I, like that's why I say that this is more of a thriller than it is like a horror film but it definitely treads that line and this also gets into my weird thing, and I don't know what it is, and I think I've even mentioned it here on this show before. I can see people being shot, dropped off cliffs, bludgeoned, like for whatever reason, none of that really bothers me, except when people start to get knifed. I don't know what it is. I have this guttural reaction that just is revulsion. I can't handle it. I get these, I, and I I'm legitimately get phantom pains. So when he's like grabbing a knife by his hand, it's like sliding oh. it down and then gets stabbed in the knee. I'm like, oh, ah, blah, ah. Like, like it was so hard for me to watch. I was physically like convulsing my body because it just was like uncomfortable for me to watch. But it only happens when it's when it's knives <laughs> in movies. I don't know why that is. I mean, we didn't research this, but there is going to be a psychological distancing with the physical distancing of violence. So when you what does watch. That mean? So if we're watching two people shoot each other, and this is this is sort of the evolution of weaponry, you know, when you have an arrow, a bullet, a missile, or a drone, and you can create sociological and psychological separations from right. assailant and victim, then you're dehumanizing it. But strangulation, knifing, things that 
you know are visceral, even if you've never stabbed someone or cut yourself accidentally. Actually, most people have accidentally cut themselves at some point. You know what it takes in some level to be that close. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's even when you watch like UFC or something and you're watching somebody hit each other, there's this sense where you're like, I've never punched someone in an octagon before, but I don't... I don't know how it'd handle this situation. I, where I I'm have like right stubbed in my toe though, so I kind of know what pain <laughs> feels like, and that looks like it hurts. But, this, but that's the thing. Like, but the, even that, there's a scale, right? So if you've stubbed your toe and you're like, "Fuck!" Like I yelped in pain, and now we're watching people stub their toe into somebody's face intentionally. Right. You get it, right? In a sense. But when you pull a trigger and somebody dies, even though technically it's more uh, violent because it's more fatal. There's that separation where you're right. like, I mean, this is probably why uh, violent crime is on the rise again with weaponry because you can, there are a couple layers back. You can be sociopathic a little bit easier, I think, with a gun than with a knife. Sure. I felt that way too. We watched Dirty Harry, we watched some of these action films, we watched somebody die with their blood turning to, to crystals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, you, you kind of walk back, you're like, yeah, it's gross. But, and then when he holds the knife or the first time she actually cuts him yeah. and you're like, what? He's not invincible, Clint. Right, right, right. And you're like, oh, wait, he's, he's getting chopped up, man. Like, how is he even coming out? Yeah, and then I started dice. thinking, would I, I'd have to do the same thing. The cops are already dead. Yeah. We don't have cell phones. There's nothing you can do except stop this woman. And he's like limping and like dying. And uh, luckily, he has got a good right hand. Yeah, just bam. Uh, otherwise, we'd have had a, a different ending. Yeah. I, I, it's just so interesting to me because you look... I look at the decades, right? Because if you look at 1960, that's when Psycho comes out and like what you could get away with in a 1960 film where it's like a lot of cuts, like, yeah, he's stabbing, but you never really see the lack of a better term penetration of the knife. So it's all within quick cutting and like obfuscating and it still can be horrific for people, but it's like, it, it's through auteurship that you get there. Here in 71, we're getting a little bit more gruesome and like yeah. in your face about it. But then if you if we were to who knows what the machine is going to have us do next season. But if we were to jump into the 80s, for instance, it's like, well, <laughs> all bets are off because now it's a slicing and dicing. We're just going to show you. Yeah. And it's like if, as many women as we can kill in one film is what we need to do. <laughs> like, that's basically what early 80s horror is. It's just like, well, there's a bunch of uh, young women and most of them are shirtless. So let's just like chop them up for, for half of this movie. <laughs> There's a, there's actually a list with a ledger. Mm -hmm. They're like we've only killed fifteen uh, <laughs> for this hour. You're like, we need two more. We need two more. The movie is called Chopping Mall. We have to have more. <laughs> um, um, so it, it's just interesting to be in like that like middle point of between the '60s '80s uh, set of time. To your first point, I, I am not an expert in this because, as you know, I don't like the idea of a horror film. <laughs> but when you brought it up. Uh, I have to often ask myself this about any genre anymore. I mean, even talking about jazz, jazz used to mean something fairly specific. And now we use words for genres, but nobody actually knows what any of them mean. Like, what's the difference between radio, rap, pop, hip hop, indie? Like, nobody knows anymore. All these yeah. things are obscure. So for me, when you say thriller and horror, I start thinking about the supernatural. Yeah. And I think that it's not a hard and fast rule, but typically the word thriller to me is like this, where there's a psychopath, there's something that's going to twist your sense of uh, fear and morality, but it's not the undead. It's not a ghoul or a demon. Yeah. This movie does a really great job at the end when she's disappearing in the hallways, where you get this eerie feeling. You're like, what the fuck just happened? When did she yeah. become this ninja, right? She'll like stab <laughs> and then disappear. You don't even see her face. If she I had actually really... busted out some of those like Billy Jack like roundhouse kicks though, <laughs> I'd be like <laughs> ten out of ten. We're done. <laughs> when uh, Oscar snub, you would have thought this would have been at least nominated for a Teen's Choice Award. Oh, you know, speaking of Oscar snub, and not that this is a movie where Jessica Walter could get nominated for any of the ones that you respect, but she's so good in this movie. Yeah, man. she's great. She is really great in this movie. <laughs> she's fun to watch. She got a Golden does... Globe nomination, but who cares? Like <laughs> they just canceled the Golden Globes for next year, so it's like oh they 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 got that much pushback for <laughs> their shenanigans this year. She's she was a revelation. I think that's what held me into this. Clint's Clint's Clint. So you kind of know what you're gonna yeah, get. I mean, the thing with Clint Eastwood is like I don't ever think he's like a great actor in the realm of I don't know like a, a, a Paul Newman Range. or something like that, like someone of his generation. 
Uh, at the same time, he does what he does very well. Like you, you know what you're getting if you come into a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, and and he knows that too. I think so. He's able to kind of bring that into that. I guess the last thing that I wanted just to bring up here, you know, we had um, I don't know how the best way to put this is. We had maybe a little bit of a disagreement, a little heated argument last uh, week about <laughs> fascism. <laughs> about fascism. Um, is this another fascist man in a movie? He's well, taking the law know. into his own hands, Dave. You know what? I, you know what I wrote is uh, I don't think I don't think in that sense it's not broad. I mean, I think that's a, a survival instinct. Whether it should be depicted as him having one punch in her. At, quote unquote, accidentally going through a window down yeah, a cliff, yeah. drowning the ocean. I mean, whatever. It, it borders into camp at that point, doesn't sure. it? But this is more of a movie about white male hubris. And I I suspect how many times, you know, we're texting like, when would you call the cops? Yeah. You know, it's no, like true. the first five minutes. <laughs> you know, uh, well, yeah, as, you said, you said, uh, first time that she like just is sitting in his car. Um, yelling at the neighbor. Yeah. For, That's for, a red flag right there. Yeah, well, well get at the neighbor is a red flag. Uh, for, for me, it would be me coming home with the Snoopy, I think, would be like, um, oh, man. I don't think I'm cool with this relationship yeah. anymore. But that's the hard thing, too, is like, this is how much of a narcissist I am, Dave. Okay. I know that you haven't been like, basically on a date in like two decades because you've been happily married. <laughs> but um, when I do a Tinder, or, and that's what they call it, do a Tinder. When I do a Tinder <laughs> or any type of those dates, I am so petrified that that's what it's going to turn into. It's like this person's mm. going to stalk me and they're going to like murder me in my sleep. So there's always like that fear that I have uh, in my heart. And so this is like my worst nightmare come true. It's like, <laughs> hey, we had a great night and now you won't leave me alone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that and th I think that's one of the great parts about the writing of the core of this is that it's playing on these universal themes of, I, I mean, we could talk about psychology if we want, but really, what is it? Unrequited love, right? Uh, well, they requited it here in this case, <laughs> but. And that's the thing, like he doesn't call the cops and he keeps sleeping with her. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I, I this is like a dumb male protagonist syndrome in, in, in a way. It's like. I, the first time that she, like, when she commits suicide or tries to quote commit unquote, suicide, quote yeah. unquote, slashed her wrists. By the way, if she really wanted to do it, she should have gone with the vein. I'm just saying. Um, Thanks. I'm just saying. It's uh, <laughs> like, that is like, uh, this is a hard stop. You have to get out of my house. Like, get in the cop car. Like, go get help. We're not doing this anymore. Restraining order in place. Because uh, this is not. This is not cool, but he stays with her and he sits up with her. He feels like guilt for her. But it's like, dude, you are such a dupe. Like, what is yeah. going on? It, it, gets, it almost gets too much. Like, this is also my huge criticism I have with certain horror films, right? And this is kind of like the parodies you always get. It's like, why are you going back in the house? Why would anyone go back in the house at this point? And it's right. almost to that level with, with Clint Eastwood in this movie. I, well, not almost. Like, it you have to second guess every choice he makes throughout the whole thing if you were trying to be critical in the sense of could this happen in real life? If you pull yourself back, which is I think horror movie world, where you're like, well, none of this is real anyways, so let's see how awfully this family is going to get murdered because they keep <laughs> right. you know, living in this ghost house um, that was once owned by a serial killer and his family's mm -hmm. carnivore, whatever the fuck it is. But this is one of those films where- <laughs> Uh, you know, he's this swinger. This is why I hated the middle part where they're trying to redeem him with this right. relationship with this woman. Well, I, I don't mind him like sleeping around. That is not the... the no, the... not that part. I, the fact that he's trying to fix it. And oh, that's what yeah, brings yeah. in this woman, you know, like, we're going to make this right. And I really want to do right by you. And then she's naming all the times he slept with the roommates and the people he works with. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And you're like, why the fuck is this woman in this movie? Well, yeah. At the same time, it's like, well, what's so great about this guy? Then? Like, we really have to understand that. Um, and I, yeah, I don't think that they fully get to that point. Uh, one last one I just want to point out. I love the name of the radio station. Did you pick up on it? No. It's K-R-M-L. It's Carmel. Ah. Uh. <laughs> uh, which apparently is a real radio station, I found out, too. Like, that is the actual call sign, too, uh, in the small little town. Speaking of real names, would you eat at a place called the Sardine Factory? Because that is a real restaurant, and I would not. We lost personally. a lot of good men in the Sardine Factory, Dave. And, <laughs> um, I also don't like sardines, so no is, is the quick answer to you. Sardines, like the, if they're cooked and used in an, a traditional Italian cuisine, but you know any tinned fish, you have to 
fish sauce. Know maybe, what you're doing with. Yeah, you got to know what you're doing with it because I still like the taste of brine. fish. It's yeah, I don't really like the taste of fish. Is the oh. is the issue? You're pretty picky. You're pretty. Picky I am not. There's stuff. only three things that I don't really love, which is name go. <laughs> Fish, olives, and mushrooms. Those are the three things that I just don't I really love. Say mushrooms. Listen, if you're not foraging out here, how can you eat? I mean, it's all mushrooms. Eat a cow. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Let the cow eat the mushroom, right. and then I eat the cow. This is Get why the nitrogen I like that way. A, a very nice young lady who uh, I was having relations with in university. <laughs> That's such a weird way to say that <laughs> sentence. Yeah. Uh, uh, cooked me dinner once and it was a uh, fish with like this uh, mushroom sauce. I'm like, I'm so sorry to do this, but I literally cannot eat any of this because I'm going to vomit. It didn't last, Dave. It didn't last. So when COVID's over, we're going to have you over. Yeah. And uh, I know exactly what we're going <laughs> to make gonna you. cook for me the very first thing. <laughs> we're done here. Um, all right. Well, the machine has told us that we need to wrap this up. I don't think there's a lot really more to say about this movie. I think that it's a quality thriller. In, in some parts, it really drags in the middle part. Well, now comes our segment called Critics' Choice. Here is what the critics of the time had to say about this movie. Roger Ebert really loved it. He wrote, the movie revolves around a character played with an unnerving effectiveness by Jessica Walter. She is something like flypaper. The more you struggle against her personality, the more tightly you're held. Clint Eastwood, in directing himself, shows that he understands his unique movie personality. He is strong, but somehow passive. He possesses strength, but keeps it coiled inside. And so the movie, by refusing to release any emotion at all until the very end, absolutely wrings us dry. There is no purpose to a suspense thriller, I suppose, except to involve us, scare us, to give us moments of vicarious terror. Play Misty for me does that with an almost cruel efficiency. So what do you think about that, Dave? Yeah, and I think that he only remembered the good parts too. <laughs> uh, yeah. That could be true. That could be true. So this next thing, this sent me down such a huge rabbit hole here this week, Dave. Pauline Kale did not review this movie. Do you know why? No. Pauline Kale hated Clint Eastwood. Ah. Hated him. Like, loathed him as a human being. Hated Blacklist. Him. Okay. He hated her as well, by the way. This is a mutually <laughs> <laughs> uh, thing. She's a too mutual. conservative for him? Okay, yeah. Well, possibly. I think that is actually part of the thing. If anyone wants to, I would do this. I'm going to actually even leave this in the show notes for this week. There's an article called Kale Kale Bang Bang, the Pauline Kale Clint Eastwood Secret Wars from oh, this wow. website called Cinephilia and Beyond, uh, written by Jason Horsley. And he goes way more into this than what we're going to go here today. But basically, he psychoanalyzes it a lot. I will say in, in that where there might have been some attraction at one time and then a rebuff and then that was reciprocated. Um, all the way up to Eastwood in the last Dirty Harry movie, having a female critic made to look like Pauline Kael, who gets pretty viciously murdered uh, in it. This apparently... Subtle, yeah. But uh, she refused to, re to review a lot of his movies, like mostly like the well-reviewed ones, and then would go off on the, like, the less-reviewed ones. So she picked her shots a little bit. So she was secretly watching all of them. Kind of started when uh, she called Dirty Harry... Uh, fascism medievalism oh yeah we read that yeah right so he responded to kale by saying that she was full of shit is what <laughs> he said to her in 1994 she had been retired for a few years at this point she was asked about eastward eastwood's like increased reputation at that time because he had just made um unforgiven and his like career was taking off even more so and she says it's a delicious joke further proof that there's no such thing as objective judgment in the arts uh, which That's is nice true. <laughs> she, uh, I mean, what, what's objective about art? Tr true enough. She just thinks that object objectively that Clint Eastwood is bad. Like that is what her <laughs> point is. Anyways, this would go even further. Depending on who you talk to, Kale would call him and apologize for her statements. And some say that she was attracted to him. There's other people that completely deny this, including her. So like, it's all wrapped up in this weird, like, I find like male fantasy, I think a little bit and, and maybe she, maybe she's Evelyn. Maybe she is Evelyn in this movie. <laughs> um, anyways, the, the last thing I was going to say is that her, one of her quotes on her retirement is like, she was asked what she was going to miss the most from being a film critic. And she says that 
I will no longer have a platform to criticize Clint Eastwood. That was what her response was. <laughs> so this ran deep. So she personal. did not like him. It was mutual on his response. So anyways, that's all to say. There's not a review from Pauline Kale, but <laughs> I did some digging. So I got a negative review from the time from the Bay Area Reporter, which was, I believe, a gay and lesbian newspaper. I, don't, I think it is. So the Internet Archive has an actual scan of the newspaper. And oh, I'm, just, awesome. I'm just basing this on the advertisements that are in that newspaper, that this, this feels like it's a gay and lesbian newspaper. So the, this is credited to Terry Allen Smith. And they say, it really isn't Eastwood's fault. Whenever the dialogue is suspended, he does fine work. It sort of makes you long for silent movies again. But the question <laughs> is this. Is it worth what seems like hours of boredom punctuated by moments of excitement to get to a brilliant 20 minutes at the end? Not for me. It ain't. So that was there. Used ain't. Says so ain't. American. Yeah. That's how you get the people. <laughs> that's how you rope them in. That's how you grab those, the young people. It's all about colloquialism in the colony of America. This does, again, come up to our question here then, Dave. Like, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? What do you say about that? It's hard to answer culturally relevant for films like this. Well, uh, because according to you, apparently, no movie is culturally relevant because nobody watches older films. No, you know what I was thinking? You know what I was thinking when this movie started? And as soon as I knew this was going to be, uh, as soon as I knew this was going to be about a stalker, I started trying to think about how many movies have been made uh, copying this film. And I think, not copying, but inspired by a film yeah. like this, uh, preceding and postseding, but... Helen was telling me about Ingrid Goes West, and uh, there's another, there's a couple, I mean, there's a lot of movies about stalkers, so um, so I I don't watch them, so I couldn't tell you whether this holds up compared to, for example, like the social media world, but I will say as far as holding up as a film, all of the exciting thriller parts will thrill people still. Mm -hmm. I think that they are genuinely well crafted. if you want to see a great performance in a thriller, Jessica Walter is like, she should be spoken of in the same vein as some of these so-called action horror thriller greats. She's incredible in this. Um, but the drag in the middle makes it so 70s. It is. You know, yeah. and it's it's such a TV moment. So, you know, 50-50. If you're willing to, like, like the uh, newspaper clipping, if you're willing, you got to answer that question. Yeah. If, if it's worth it. Uh, yeah. If you can deal with 45 minutes of garbage to get to 20, 20, uh, maybe 40 minutes of like fun. Well, that's the thing. Uh, it's like, uh, you'll enjoy it. When, whenever anyone brings up that kind of criticism for anything, which is like, it's slow or uh, it, it drags, like, I'm kind of okay with that. Like, I, I'm fine with slower moving films if what is happening is still like interesting to me. Like, or relevant to the right. story. The, the, the yeah. best for, again, this is a very personal thing for me. But the best of Tarantino is really just people talking, right? It's just like two characters talking. And I could see some people being like, why are they talking about hamburgers for 10 minutes in this car? But for me, it's like the dialogue is snappy. It's fun. It's funny. Like, I, I enjoy the performances that are going on. That can work. Uh, this does not work. I don't think the middle portion of this movie works because it's like, it'd be one thing if they were walking along and it was like, oh, this is like really well-crafted dialogue. It's like, this is not even interesting things to listen to if i was eavesdropping on these people in a starbucks i'd be like okay you're boring let me listen to this table over here and see if they have anything more interesting to say i think too i mean i mean you brought it up but if any dialogue or so-called drag or dramatic moment is building up so if we're going to talk about pulp fiction listening to them argue about hamburgers creates empathy for them as individuals and so when they suffer later or when you contrast that. He to liked the, Royales. Um, he liked Royales. Yeah. Well, you know, you get the silly moment and then you get uh, yeah. Sam Jackson quoting the Bible. You know, and you're like, it's exciting because you're like, what the fuck happened to this dude? So that's that has a purpose. In this one, it just doesn't work. It's, it's garbage, that part. And, it, and when you brought it up, it makes sense that it was cut into it because yeah. that's what it feels like. I think there should have been more talking. Just keep every character talking all the time. Yeah. So I think I, I think I agree with you as far as like, there's elements that do, but there's elements that don't. As far as other cultural relevance, even this is starting to become less and less relevant. But apparently there's an episode of that 70s show where a character takes a date to see this movie and they think that Evelyn is the actual hero of the movie. And so that's where the comedy <laughs> comes from in that episode of that television show that has not been on the air for like 15 years. But <laughs> Great. 
I'd love to know what your rating is going to be here, Dave. Mm. But that is what Dave and I thought about Play Misty for me. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support us for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie? Yeah, I'm a bit torn. I actually really liked watching it. Uh, I had a visceral reaction to many parts, but I hated so many parts of it as well. <laughs> I think just because I like Jessica uh, Walters so much in this, I'm going to go with a three, which might be one of my highest ratings this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have even got higher if it wasn't for the middle portion and the font. I mean, who chooses that font? And, you know? and, and the electric green too. It's just like, what? <laughs> oh. everything about this is bad. <laughs> it's weird. Dave, something momentous has actually happened Ooh. here in the year 1971. First, that you actually liked a movie. I think that has to be commended. <laughs> Check three off the year. It's great. Secondly, uh, it feels like we're back in 1999, baby, because we gave the same rating to this movie. We're friends again. Yeah, oh. I know. <laughs> uh, so I, I agree. I think everything that you said, like if they could have honed in on what makes this movie so good... This would have been like one of my favorite thrillers of all time. Unfortunately, it gets bogged down in all this other stuff that's like I just don't care about. So that's a, that's a shame. Um, it's not a movie I'm going to be rushing out to see again. But if it was to be put on in a room I was sitting in, I would not hate that experience to go through it here again. And who doesn't like to see Jessica Walter punch in the face and fall down the cliff? It's it's, the, it's how Arrested Development worked so well. <laughs> I also think. Honestly, and and we always do this in a revisionist sense, if they had just left it, and if this was 65 minutes long, I think it would have been a classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have been so good. I would I would rewatch that. We need an anti-director's cut. <laughs> That's right. The, the fan <laughs> cut of this movie. Um, okay, so Dave, we've rated this a three. That means it's going to tie for two films, two very drastically different films. So it ties with Shaft and Willy Wonka. So where would you place those uh, in that list? Well, as you know, I abhor Willy Wonka. So it'll be above that. And where did Shaft, was Shaft above Willy Wonka? Ooh, that's a tough one. If you would agree, I mean, you wouldn't because you love Wonka, but Mm -hmm. I might defer to you to to swap those two because I think like you said, they're so different. Again, but- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start looking at like our actual individual ratings more. I would actually make the pitch to put it in between. So above Willy Wonka, but below Shaft. And I only say that because we both gave this a three, but you gave like a much lower rating to Willy Wonka, of course. And there's not much of a division for, for Shaft. I gave it a 3.5. You gave it a 2.5. So I think it makes more sense to put it in between those two. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. And like we've been talking about, the more I become immersed into 1971, having started off with some of those hard-hitting, culturally powerful movies, wasn't a mistake, but what a primer to come through into this section and be like, oh man, you know, I definitely didn't give those. Just to put it in context, for those people who are listening from the beginning, which is not too many of you, we start off 1999 with fucking Varsity Blues. That is true. There was a much more different palate <laughs> cleanser that we had in 1999 versus 1971. In my defense. Maybe so. at the end, I mean, we've kind of been talking about this both on and off mic. Uh, maybe at the end, yeah, we can do some like maybe revision ratings of like bumping things up by like 0.5 or down by 0.5. Just to, like just reorder quick, the list. Yeah. Or just a quick topical discussion of the year mm-hmm. and see if anything's been very egregious. Maybe we'll get. We'll give each other like five scores to manipulate instead right. of the whole year. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Um, one thing that will remain the same no matter what, uh, Million Dollar Duck will be the worst film we've seen this year. I, I can't imagine. I cannot yeah. imagine something being worse. <laughs> if it isn't, Kyle, I don't know. We might have to quit. We might just break the machine because uh, how could anything 
We've already talked about it, so it's unfair to ruin yeah, this episode with it. But how could anything be worse? At the very least, even other things I've disliked was still a movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> so at least there's that for those oh, other films. Um, unlike Million Dollar Deck, which is basically just um, celluloid that they somehow like bundled together and released into theaters. How did they not, oh, man, think about all the films they've lost because they didn't preserve it properly. Yeah, like the 90% of silent movie classics that are just not available because they don't exist anymore. And yet Million this, Dollar Duck is on a streaming service that you can go and it watch. It looks digitally restored, that yeah. piece of shit. It's awful. All Ugh. right. Well, Dave, I guess we should find out what we're watching here next week. Uh, okay. I'm going to push this button. Okay. Well, Dave, we saw a very toxic relationship in this movie play missy for me next week we're going to see a movie that hopefully has a better relationship in it and it's called summer of 42 is what we're going to be watching mm. next week a a love story that spans the ages or so i have been told mm. the age of 1942 yeah yeah you okay. know back when men were men and women couldn't <laughs> vote um I would have done well with uh, more trench coat in my life, I think. <laughs> Everyone could use more trench coat. God, this, this uh, mechanic is just not stopping with these text messages, Dave. He wants, to come, that one say? he wants to come over tonight? What does that mean? Oh, you know, just, uh, I, I got nothing. That's just really just, gross. Just, just punch it. Just punch it. I love their tacos.